enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are uh, ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Um, are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs uh, from thistles? So every healthy tree bears fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone will, uh, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then uh, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on his house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we pray that uh, you would give us hearts to both hear the words you say but also to put them into practice. Would they shape our lives? And so, uh, Lord, I pray as w- uh, we look at your word now that your spirit would take these words and um, that you would pierce our hearts, pierce our lives, pierce our minds, and apply them to uh, each one of our lives, that we could uh, respond with repentance and faith and that we might find life in Jesus our Savior. Uh, Give us your word, and I pray that uh, in my weakness, uh, you would speak with power and strength to your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, as we're coming to the Sermon on the Mount, um, the conclusion of the sermon was just like any good preacher. I mean, Jesus is a far better preacher than even my best sermon, but, you know, like a good preacher, he ends his sermon with uh, calling us to, to a decision, right? So... You know, that passage I just read, he, he has this list of kind of uh, two options, right? There's the two gates, and there's the two paths, and there's the two fruit trees that has good fruit and, good fruit and, uh, and, and bad fruit. And there's the two houses, the house that's built, uh, built on the rock and the house that's built on the sand. And Jesus is, is putting before us a decision, a question, a, uh, which is going to be your life? So we're going to be looking at that over the, these, these next few weeks. And, um, and the decision is, who are you going to follow? Do you trust Jesus, Jesus enough to believe uh, the words from his sermon, to put them into practice? Will you give Jesus Christ authority over your life? That's kind of the decision that he's putting before each one of us. And that may be a really relevant question for you. If you're, if you're not a Christian, if you never uh, made a decision that I want to follow Jesus, I, I put my trust in him. I believe he is God. I believe he has called me to follow him and give my life to him. 
That's an that's important question, decision that he's putting b- before you. But even for those of us who are Christians and put our faith in Jesus, this is a regular question of, will I obey him? Will I hear his words? And when I hear the words of God, do I put them in practice? Do, does the word of God, do, especially Jesus' words in this sermon, do they have that kind of power in my life that I respond to them and I do them? And so um, it's these questions that Jesus is confronting us with at the end of this sermon. And as we look at Jesus' call to follow him, to be his disciple, I want to draw out two surprising kind of observations in what he says just in verses 13 and 14. We're just going to look at that first parable in verses 13 and 14. And he tells us two things. is that First of all, that the way is narrow. The way that Jesus is calling us to is narrow. And secondly, the way seems to lead to death, but actually leads to life. The way seems to lead to death, but actually leads to life. These are the two things we're going to be looking at. We're going to jump right into it. So the first thing is Jesus says that the way is narrow. Now this is actually a pretty um, unpopular thing to believe or to say in our culture, right? When Jesus says, uh, enter by the narrow gate, or verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Um, and I, I actually, we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus also taught about a gate. He says that I am the gate. I am the door. And uh, so basically, um, you know, one of the biggest critiques that uh, is kind of hurled at Christians is exactly this. That people say that Christians are, are so narrow. They're so narrow in their beliefs. You know, Christians say that you have to believe in, in Jesus in, in order to be saved, in order to know God, to have a relationship with God. This is the only way. There's no other way. And so many people in our culture, a place like Bellingham, would say, you know, it seems so uh, black and white. You know, this either, you're either in or you're out. You're either, you're either in with God or, you, or, or you're out. Which on the one hand, you know, we probably shouldn't be marking people in and out in the first place, right? I mean, to say that some people are kind of in with God and some people are out with God, doesn't that seem arrogant for a group of people to think they're the in, and then they're going to feel superior to the out group. But beyond that, to actually, the, what's the criteria for being in? That if you happen to believe that there was this man 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God, who was uh, crucified by the Roman authorities and then was raised from the dead the third day, if you happen to believe that story, then you get saved and you get to be with God forever. And if you happen to not believe that, then you're lost. And, you know, as Jesus says here, uh, you know, your life is leading towards eternal destruction. You know, it seems so arbitrary, just marking this this in and out. And, um, and of course, the the alternative is, you know, a place like Bellingham would say, listen, it's not an in in or out situation that if you believe, then you're saved and you're in. If you don't believe, you're out and uh, and you're lost. Uh, A spiritual life is, is more like a journey, right? We're all on a journey. And, you know, we're asking questions, but no one's ever arrived at the answer. We're all asking questions about who God is, but no one could ever know everything about God or come to a place where they say that they've actually come to the truth or they've arrived at the truth. We're on a journey. We're all making progress. We're at different stages, not an in and out. It's a progression, right? Now, in some regard, uh, Jesus would in some ways agree with, uh, the, the, uh, wouldn't totally disagree with that kind of thought because he does understand that life is a journey, and uh, he even uses this image in this passage of, of uh, being on a path, right? Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. He says that I'm, I'm bringing you onto a way. I'm bringing you onto a path, onto a journey, right? Um, but you notice that Jesus doesn't just use the image of a path. He also uses the image of a gate, right? It's both a gate and a path. And it's the gate always comes first. 
Look at, uh, look at that again, uh, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The gate, and then the path. Uh, and for those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to destruction. So the pattern is that uh, you go through the gate first, and then you enter into, and then you begin the journey, right? And a gate is a very different image than, it, than the path, right? Because the gate is an in-out. You either cross the door, you, it's a momentary event, it's a decision, it's an in-out marker. And, um, and so what Jesus is saying is before you start your journey, before you start your spiritual journey, you have to make a decision. Is what, my, what is my life about? What path am I on? Where am I going? What's the destination of the path? What's the path about? What is the purpose? What's the guiding principle? You have to make a decision. You have to, uh, there has to be a guiding criteria before you even begin the journey. And, uh, and it's not just about having an open mind and just, we can't just have an open mind about everything and just answer questions. Um, you know, G.K. Chesterton has a famous quote where he says, the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid, all right? You open your mind just like you open your mouth because you want to close it on something. You need an answer. You want an answer. And that's, you know, that's much more how we are when we're children. You know, children are very open-minded. They're asking lots of questions, and they want to know about the world. But they are not satisfied with, uh, well, you know, this person believes this, and this person believes that. You know, I try that with my kids. Which one's right? <laughs> Which one's the right answer? Because they, they're hungry. They, they have a, a desire to learn. They have a desire to ask questions. But they never lose that desire for an answer. Something to close down on. And before we start our journey, we have to ask, where is the path going? What is the destination? Because, you know, you think about it, If you're on any journey and you're going to make any progress on the journey, you have to ha have a stationary destination, right? So if you start a, you know, a road trip to San Diego... And then halfway through, you say, you know, actually, I'm not going to San Diego. I'm going to go to Montana. You know, however hundreds of miles you already traveled <laughs> are useless now that you're starting to go to Montana. You have to keep your destination fixed. You gotta, before you start the journey, you have to pick a destination. And you've got to stay on that destination or you're never going to make progress. And Jesus says that we have to go through the gate. And Jesus says, I am the only gate. I'm the only starting point to the journey, to the path that leads to true life. That's the claim that Jesus makes, which is a tremendously narrow statement. He even admits it. He admits it's a narrow statement. I'm a narrow gate <laughs> you've got to walk through. And how can we buy that? How can that sit well with us, such a narrow vision of the spiritual life? And um, I think there's, you know, we can answer that in a couple ways. First, um, I think one answer is because of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is something that, you know, we can never talk too much about, that, um, that uh, the claims that Jesus makes about himself, no one in the history of the world has ever talked like Jesus talked. Actually, in this passage I just read for you, down in verse 21, uh, this is what Jesus says. Listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so, you know, he's talking about himself has the title Lord. <laughs> the title for God is how people are going to talk to him, will enter the kingdom. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of, the, my, father who's in, uh, of uh, my father who is in heaven. And listen to this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I declare, and then, uh, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here Jesus is painting a picture of the day of final judgment. 
And he's saying, everyone in the world, when they're going to be judged, they're going to stand before me. <laughs> and I'm going to be the judge who's going to make a decision about how people live their life. I, I mean, what a claim. For someone to make a claim like that, I am the judge of all humanity, everyone who ever lived, and I'm going to make the decision. And, and the criteria is whether I knew them, I had a relationship with them. What kind of statement is that? No one has made a, a statement like that. And then, even as Jesus finishes this sermon, what happens? Jesus does this three chapters that we've been looking at in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In verse 28, it's after he finishes talking, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, these sayings that end with him putting himself as the judge of the world, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They didn't say he's mad. They were, they were breathless. They were speechless. They were astonished. They had nothing they could say. There's nothing. And they said the, the beauty of his words were so profound. They never heard words like that. And he, was, he, he, didn't, he didn't talk like teachers of the Bible. He talked like he was speaking the very words of God is how they responded to him. And um, no teacher, you know, Buddha, Muhammad, never talked anything like that. Buddha would say, would never, uh, would say I'm going to show you the way. I'm going to show you the way to, to spiritual, true spiritual life. He would never say, I am the way. Jesus says, I am the way. You need to, I am the way to, to spiritual life. Muhammad would never say, I'm the judge. He would say, Allah is the judge. But Jesus says, I'm the judge of the whole world. And so there's something utterly unique about Jesus. So the reason the path is narrow, the way is narrow, that we have to start with him is because no one's like him. But the second reason for the narrowness um, that I, I think why I think this can sit well with this, why we can embrace a belief that is, uh, is narrow, that Jesus is the only gate that leads to true life, is that as we look at the world, we have to decide that there's something wrong with humanity, right? There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with, you know, on a kind of global scale, you know, where humanity is killing each other and warring with each other and all those kinds of things throughout history. And yet I also see there's something profoundly wrong with me and the way that I treat people, the way I'm critical of people, the way, uh, you know, I, I'm petty or selfish. We all have a sense that there's something profoundly wrong with humanity. And anyone... Um, uh, who's looking seriously at humanity says there has, something has to change. We have to demand something different from ourselves and from humanity. And the question is, why do we say that Jesus is the answer? We're saying, what Christians are saying is the thing that needs to change about humanity is they need to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the thing. That's the one thing that needs to change. And you might say, well, you know, why, why don't we pick something more broad, right? Like love. You know, why don't we take something like love? Why don't we just say what humanity needs is they need to accept love as uh, let's get along, let's be decent to each other, let's be generous to each other. Why isn't that uh, uh, the, the thing that we're demanding from humanity? And the reason for that is because that doesn't go deep enough. We know it doesn't go deep enough. Because every civilization has always said that you should love people. Everyone knows that you should be decent to people. Everyone says that and we don't do it. So the question is not, should we love people? The question is, why don't we love people? And um, because anyone, knows, any, anyone who knows anything about love knows that you only love people when you've been loved first. You know, children love others when they've been loved first. We, we need uh, love to be, love bestows loveliness. Love needs to be poured into us before it can be poured out of us. And, um, and so God must love us before we can love each other. 
And love, this is an important point, is that love is always an action. Love is always an event, right? So, you know, I, I was just, I just did Catherine Jorgensen's wedding this last, this last week, and I was reminded of this, uh, uh, when Shannon and I, and I shared this in the wedding, of that uh, when Shannon and I first fell in, uh, fell in love, um, you know, I, I was kind of depressed. I was kind of Eeyore. I was in college. I was at Western. She was at, uh, at Western, or at Wazoo, and you know, I really missed her, and I was, uh, you know, and so I was moping all the time. I wish you're, you know, and I was pretty sure that she was going to, you know, I was waiting for the phone call or the conversation to say, hey, sorry, pal, you know, this, I don't think this is working out. You're a little too much Eeyore for me. And, uh, and I was, you know, I was like, there's no way this girl, she loves God, and she's, uh, you know, she's beautiful, and I, uh, I, I'm sure this isn't going to work out. And I remember uh, one day she sent me this letter, um, and it, I just opened it up. It was one sheet of paper, and it just titled, 50 Things I Like About You. And, you know, it, had, it was bullet-pointed with little hearts and things like that. It was a really cheesy thing. <laughs> but it was, it was a turning point in our relationship profoundly to me. And it, it was really, you know, it, in my heart, I kind of secured, wow, this might actually work out. 50 things, wow, that's a lot. And, uh, but I'll tell you, that act of love, that act of love, I can, I can tell you exactly where I was standing when I read it. I can tell you the mailboxes. I was, you know, what I was feeling. Love was an event, it was concrete. It was particular. Love is not some vague, um, you know, energy that's floating in the sky. Love is something that happens. And so as we ask, okay, we need God to pour his love into us before we can pour out love. When did it happen? When did the love of God, when was it an event? And it was an event in Jesus Christ. When God became a man, he became one of us. He took on our weakness. He took on our frailty. And he went to the cross. He bore all of our shame. He bore the wrath of God. He bore all of our sin. And then he conquered death in the resurrection. That was love. That was the event of love. And it's particular. You see, it's concrete. It's narrow. It's this one little event in a certain place in history. In a certain time, it happened. And that's why it has to be narrow. Truth is always narrow. Truth is always exclusive. Good truth is always that way. True love is always that way. And so um, it's surprising to us that the way that Jesus calls us to, the, the gate that he calls us through himself is a narrow gate. But when we really look at it, we realize it couldn't be any other way. Truth had to be narrow. It had to be narrow. But because of this narrowness, narrowness, because of the narrowness of the gate and the narrowness of the path that he's calling to, uh, we see a second thing about the way that Jesus is calling us to. is not just that it's narrow, but the way seems to lead to death, but actually leads to life. The way that Jesus is calling us to, it seems to lead to death, but it actually leads to life. And, um, you know, when Jesus calls us to obey him, to follow him, to trust him, uh, it looks on the surface like it's going to suffocate us. You know, the things that Jesus is asking to the Christian life, the being a disciple, that it's, it's, it's going to um, crush us, it's going to constrain us, we're not going to have any freedom, and it's going to strangle all the life of the, out of us and make us miserable. But even though it seems like that, it, it doesn't do that. And the reason it seems like death to us is for two reasons. Because the way, first of all, is, be, is because um, the way is constraining the way that Jesus is calling to us to is constraining. And let me explain by what I mean by that. Look at verse 14 again. Jesus says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. Now, that word hard, is, it's a little misleading, actually. Uh, the word that's used there, the Greek word, um, uh, philippo, or uh, yes, 
Flebo, right? Yeah, Flebo. Sorry, Flebo, is um, is actually uh, it's you know when we hear that that the way is hard, I, I picture you know that we're going on a really hard hike, and I need my hiking boots, and I'm sweating, and I'm like, oh, work real hard. It's really laborious. So Jesus is saying the path is laborious, but actually that's not what that word means. The word is more is that it's constricting. That, you know, I'm going through a bottleneck and I'm being pressed in from all sides. And actually, it's the same word that's used in Mark 3 when uh, uh, Jesus is on the seashore and he's got all these people coming that he's going to teach them. And it says, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because, uh, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So Jesus, everyone's coming to Jesus and they're all pressing in around him. And so the, the way is hard. It's not that it's, it's laborious and we have to work really hard. It's that it's, it's narrow again. It feels constricting. It feels like we're losing our freedom. And um, one, of the things, one of the biggest fears that people have about following Jesus, and this may be your fear, is that I'm going to lose my freedom. I'm not going to get to live life the way I want to. But one of the things that we're learning uh, in my generation, I, I think, is, uh, is, you know, my generation, maybe the generation before me even, has, has grown up with uh, the biggest message has been, you can be whoever you want. There's nothing holding you back. You can, whatever vocation you want to be, there's no family tradition that you have to follow. There's, uh, there's no cultural tradition. You just open your mind and imagine, and the world is your oyster. Whatever you want to be, go and do it. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. This is the main message of, of what it means to be human that uh, my generation has grown up with, and the effect of that has been interesting. And uh, this, is a, uh, this is an article I read a while back that's talking about the phenomenon and this effect that that uh, uh, that kind of cultural idea has had on, on people in my generation, and uh, this is what the author says, unrelenting indecision, isolation, confusion, and anxiety about working, relationships, and direction is reported by people in their mid-20s to early 30s who are usually urban, middle-class, and well-educated. Now listen to this statement. They can't make any decisions because they don't know what they want. And they don't know what they want because they don't know who they are. And they don't know who they are because they're allowed to be anyone they want. They don't know who they are because they're allowed to be anyone. There's nothing guiding them. It's absolute freedom. And the total freedom, absolute freedom, has completely frozen them. And, uh, and, 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 and so that there, it's filled with indecision and anxiety and confusion. And it's not this abundant free life, but it's actually stagnation. It's led to stagnation, which actually sounds a lot like what Jesus says in verse 13. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. Actually, that word easy is spacious. It's the, this, the path that, uh, that the many are on. You can do whatever you want. There's lots of room to move around, lots of options. <laughs> Uh, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And Jesus um, uh, says that actually absolute freedom, to be able to do whatever you want, will actually lead to destruction. It will lead to stagnation. It won't lead to life. But Jesus says that true freedom comes from being on his constraining narrow path. He has a narrow constraining path. And when we're on that path, actually we come alive. We become what we were made for. And that's what this path is, is us living in who God, in the constraints of who God made us to be. Actually, probably a good image of this, you know, is, is a fish. You know, fish has a lot of freedom 
in water, right? A fish was made to live in water, and when it's in the water, it's swimming and go this way and that way and doing all kinds of stuff. And the fish loves the water. Now, let's say we had a, you know, 28-year-old fish that said, you know, I'm out of here. I'm going to break the norms. I don't want to be constrained by this this pond or this pool or this ocean. I want, I, you know, why do I have to be in the water? Why do, you, why do I have to live in the water? I'm going to jump up on the beach. What's going to happen? <laughs> I want to break out of the limits that God uh, put on me. I want to break out of those limits. What, what's going to happen? Death, destruction. Actually, by embracing its limits, embracing how, what God made it for, a fish finds its freedom when it stays in the water, when it stays in the limits. And um, exact, this is exactly what Jesus is, is calling us to by following him and discipling and, and embracing the limits that he puts on us, the constraining of his path. This is what John Stott says. If fish were made for water, what were human beings made for? The biblical answer surely is that if fish were made for water, human beings were made for love, for loving God and loving our neighbor. Love is the element in, in which humans find their distinctive humanness. When we take these constraints of loving and following Jesus and loving our neighbor, we actually come alive and we find true freedom. When we lose our freedom, we find our freedom. And uh, so Jesus' way, it seems like death. Most of us see like, gosh, I've got to follow Jesus. I've got to obey him. I've got to do what he says. It's going to restrict me. No, it doesn't do that. It makes you who he made you. It's like a fish coming into water. You'll come alive and you actually find your freedom. Okay? But the second reason uh, that the way uh, seems to lead to death but actually leads to life is because it is lonely. So it's because it's constraining but also because it's lonely. And you see this verse 14. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those who find this path are few. Now, we might read that and say, wow, Jesus is saying there's not going to be a lot of people who are actually going to become true followers of, of Christ. I don't actually think that's what he's saying. Um, that, you know, this is, he's saying that the number of people who are going to be saved are just a few. Because uh, in the very next chapter, in Matthew chapter 8, this is what Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west, 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 west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he says there's going to be people from all over nations. All kinds of people are coming to this feast. God is opening this feast and welcoming all kinds of people. So it's not going to be a few people. It's going to be many people. But what I think he is saying um, is that um, to follow Jesus always involves going against a crowd. It's, the decision to follow him will always have the loneliness of saying, I'm not going to just go with the wave of what everyone is doing. Many are going into the path that leads to destruction, but few find this path. And it always has um, uh, this sense that no one understands what you're doing. When you follow Jesus, you're going to have people around you who don't understand. It doesn't make sense to them. And, uh, you know, of course, this, many times this is going to be within in the context of our own family or with close friends. And uh, actually, some commentators say that this image of Jesus saying, you know, I, you, you have to go through the narrow gate, is that what he's saying is that really the gate only, you can only fit through one person at a time. So, you know, I can't uh, quite just go in with my family or go in with my friends and my crowd. I'm just one of the crowd. It's a decision to follow Jesus that I have to make as an individual. And of course, 
you know, that's, that's, that's true for our children that are growing up in our church. You know, in our church, we, we baptize the babies in our church, and we say, we're going to raise you as Christians. We're going to teach you to follow Jesus. But all of them, I'm prepared for this with my kids, is they're, they're going to come to a point where they're going ha- to have to make decisions apart from me. You know, I'm kind of a surrogate. I'm with them for a while, but there's going to come a time where I'm not going to be there. And they're going to have to make decisions to obey and to follow Christ on their own. And that's what he's saying is this is a narrow gate. You can't follow the crowd and do what the crowd is doing. And in this sense... Following Jesus feels like dying because it includes a risk of loneliness. It includes a risk that no one's going to understand what I'm doing, and I'm just making this decision to follow Christ. People won't understand me. And uh, there's a great uh, illustration of this in C.S. Lewis's, uh, one of his Narnia stories, Prince Caspian. And if you know the story, it's a story about these four Pavensi uh, children who go to Narnia. They'd been to Narnia once, they go to Narnia again, and it's, you know, a thousand years later or something. And uh, so everything's changed, and they don't know what their way around, and they're trying to find their way through this wood. And they come to this place where they, you know, they're at a crossroads, they don't know which direction to go. And the whole crowd of the kids are all saying, you know, I think we should go down into a ravine or something like that. And Lucy, the youngest girl, uh, looks up and she says, look, there's Aslan. Aslan's kind of the, the hero lion king uh, Christ figure in the story. And she says, I saw Aslan. He's up that way. We're not supposed to go down. We're supposed to go up. And everyone says, yeah, we didn't see her, Lucy. Sorry. And everyone votes. We're going to go down. We're not going to go up. And so Lucy goes with him, and the story goes on. And then, uh, you know, I I don't know if it's that night or the next night, uh, Aslan comes and meets Lucy. And they have this exchange. And she says, wasn't that so terrible? I was telling everyone that you were up, and I saw you. And, uh, And then no one believed me, and they went down. And this is what Lewis says. From somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy, who understood some of his moods. I didn't want to start slanging the others. You know, she was saying it was all their fault. But, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy. You don't mean it was. How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come up to you alone, how could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could. Yes, and it wouldn't have been alone. I know if I was with you. I wouldn't have been alone. And so there's this, Lewis is painting this picture of she, she should have left the crowd. She should have gone and followed Aslan. And she realized that she wouldn't have been alone. She would have been with Jesus, and, or been with Aslan. And that's the same for us, is that we're in this, Jesus is putting before us this decision to follow him on a path, and oftentimes it's going to feel alone, but he is going to be there with us. The one Jesus who's so full of life. You know, as Athanasius said, he's so full of life that he had to borrow death from us. He had to borrow destruction from us in order for him to die, and to come and to be with him, and that's a great reward. That's the destination. And so when as we begin our spiritual journey, we have to, you know, we have to choose. Are we going to San Diego? Are we going to Montana? Where are we going? Life is in Christ. And at the beginning of the journey, we have to go through the gate that goes towards him and towards life in him. And so he's calling us to decision, whether you're here and, and you're a Christian, and uh, this is a regular decision to follow and to obey Christ, or if you're not a Christian, and for the first time, hear Jesus' call. He is bidding you to come and to follow me. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for the great challenge of this passage, the great mystery of it. 
how it says things that we wouldn't have thought. It says everything seems backwards, and yet they turn, these words turn out to be true. Give us uh, faith to indeed follow you, uh, to enter in by the narrow gate, uh, to walk uh, the path that is constrained, that is narrow, that we might find life, and that we would trust you even when others are going in other directions, when others don't understand us. Give us that obedience. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.